the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Judges. They're negotiating. And this is a picture for us of our own flesh. There are certain things that God will tell us, drive out. But we try to negotiate with our flesh. I'm just going to let this little part stay here because I enjoy this little part. And God's like, drive that out. Yeah, but I enjoy this little part. It's That's going to be the little part that destroys you. This is a picture here of what happens when we don't do due diligence to deal with the stuff that could potentially destroy us. God is very thorough in His process to make us holy. There are instances in the Bible where people will give Jesus some of their life, but not all of it. They will hold on to a small part of their flesh and think it's okay. God wants to sanctify our whole being, not just a little part. In today's message, Pastor Gary will be sharing about driving out all the little parts of our flesh that we want to hang on to. God sees the whole picture. He knows that those little things we hold on to can grow into something that can kill us. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Judges chapter 1 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Now, if you'll notice the next verse, verse 7 says, And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. So we learn a couple things. One is that Adonai Bezek had done the same thing. When he conquered some neighboring king, he would cut off their thumbs, and their big toes as well. And so Adonai Bezek is basically saying, even though he's not a follower of God, he's acknowledging the true God because it's, it's God's name that is used here. And he says, God's paying me back. God is paying me back. You know, even the heathen here understands something about divine consequences. You reap what you sow. You know, in secular Verbiage, we'd say it's karma. You know, you're getting back what you what you do. But what we know this principle from the Bible: whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. That there are consequences, and that when we do things, there are certain consequences that we, that we will reap as a result of it. Now, the other thing we learn here is not only that Adonai Bezek, this pagan guy, has a concept of divine justice that you reap what you sow, but we also learn here that. The reason why the Israelites cut off his thumbs and his big toes is because they learned that 
from a guy like Adonai Bezek. In fact, this was a common practice of the day. The reason this is important to note is because this story gives us insight into the spiritual decline of the Israelites that I talked about in our introduction. How so? Because they're adapting the customs of the pagans. God didn't tell them, cut off the thumbs and the big toes of these people. Why are they doing this? They're doing it because they realize, well, the other pagan people around us do this, so I guess we should do it. This is the first step to the decline here. They're engaging in practices that were not ordered by God. They're doing this because they learned it from what people around them are doing who are pagan. So this this event here that is happening is a picture here. We're getting a glimpse into the spiritual decline of a nation because they started adopting the pagan practices around them. This is why it's so concerning to me when we look at our own day, our own culture, and people who profess to be Christians, but they start living like and doing things just like an unbelieving world around them. And it is the decline of not only it's inconsistent with Christianity, it's the ultimate decline of a nation. When, when the only vestige of what is God's representation of righteousness in the earth, which is his church, when his church begins to compromise and engage in practices just like the rest of the world, then that moral standard, that representation of God, the ambassadors of Christ, no longer represent his righteousness. It is the decline of a nation. So that's why we, as men and women and young people who love the Lord, have to continue to be faithful to Him and to raise that standard of righteousness and to lift up the Lord in conversation, in lifestyle, in practices, because we have to continue to represent Him well. They were not representing God well here. They start adapting this kind of barbaric practice that they didn't need to do. It's like, you know, if God enables them to defeat their enemy, do you think that God needs help by having their thumbs and big toes cut off? And where God's up in heaven going, wow, thank you for doing that because they were going to be too fast now. <laughs> no, that God doesn't need our help. And so they're adapting here this practice among the pagan people. It's the decline down the slippery slope here. Verse 8, now the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. And then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they killed Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai. And from there they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And then Caleb said, this is verse 12. So this is the Caleb from the book of Joshua. Okay, Caleb and Joshua were buddies. They were the only two faithful of the spies when Moses sent the spies into the promised land. So that's this Caleb. Then Caleb said, whoever attacks Kiriath-sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz... Okay, here, Othniel, circle that in your Bible. He's he's going to become first of the judges. So we're introduced to the first of the judges here. Othniel, whose name, by the way, it's difficult to translate. Some translators say his name means God is my help or my strength. So it says in verse 13, And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. 
And so he gave him his daughter, Aksah, as wife. So let me unpack this a little bit. So Caleb wants somebody to attack Kiriath-sephir, and he offers as a reward his daughter in marriage. He says, if there's any valiant soldier among us who can take Kiriath-sephir, I will give my daughter, Aksa, in, in marriage. Now, Aksa in Hebrew, her name means adorned. And so it is believed that she was very beautiful, very attractive after all. I mean, think about it, right? If Caleb is going to offer his daughter in marriage to some valiant soldier, if she really wasn't much to look at, no soldier would have been like, I'm not dying for that. You know what I'm saying to you? I mean, I'm just being real with you. She probably was very beautiful. And then all the soldiers are like tripping over each other. I'm going to go fight. I'm going to go get this city because I want her in marriage. Now, if you look at the family dynamics here, though, who is Othniel? Othniel is Caleb's nephew, because Othniel is the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz. So Caleb is the uncle of Othniel. But once Caleb gives his daughter to his nephew, his nephew is going to become his son-in-law. Have you followed this? (laughs) Othniel is going to marry his cousin. We're going to keep it all in the family, friends, all right? And I'm not going to make any West Virginia jokes. That would be completely inappropriate. It's a family tree here that gets a little messy with Caleb and his brother Kenaz. Kenaz has a son, Othniel. Caleb has a daughter, Aksa. These two are going to marry. Othniel's the one who's like, I'm going to fight. I'm going to funk for, uh, fight for you, Uncle Caleb, and I'm going to, I'm going to get my cousin uh, to be my wife. And there's going to be moonshine at the party. Anyway, I'm, I'm digressing. And bluegrass, anyway, verse 14. And trucks and guns. All right, verse 14. Now it happened that when she came to him, that she comes to her husband, that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you wish? So in other words, Caleb overhears this little, they're having a little chit-chat probably in front of him. So Aksa is saying to Othniel, like, I want you to ask my daddy for something. And, and, and what I want you to ask him is, she's going to find out, she wants a field here. So she gets off her donkey, and Caleb says, well, what do you wish? Like, what are you guys talking about? And so she said to him, verse 14, give me a blessing. Since you have given me land in the south, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So, you know, Othniel was valiant enough to fight to win her, but not quite valiant enough to ask her dad a favor. And so she has to ask dad herself. You know, I want, I want a field that have springs. And so he gives it to her. So it's like a, a gift. In verse 16, now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms, that's Jericho, remember, with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. And Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephthah and utterly destroyed it. And so the name of the city was called Hormah. Also, Judah took Gaza with its territory. Now, on a map, this is the same area today. We we hear a lot about Gaza, the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians out of Gaza. This is that same territory there. It hugs the coast of the Mediterranean. Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So the Lord was with Judah, and they drove out the mountaineers. See, mountaineers. See, we are. this is West Virginia. 
But, now circle that word, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. And they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said. Then he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. Now remember, the Anakites were this giant race. The Nephilim, the Anakites, and there's a whole story behind them. But they had to deal still with the Anakites here. But, but notice it says that they, he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. Verse 21, but, there's that word again, but the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Now note, When the writer here of Judges says, to this day, this has to be obviously again before the the period of the kings, because it wasn't until King David that Jerusalem was actually secured for the Israelites. The Jebusites continued to occupy the city of Jebu, which will get renamed Yerushalayim, the city of peace, Jerusalem. But it's not until David's general Joab will we'll crawl up the cistern there of the Gihon Spring and make his way. How Jerusalem falls is an incredible story. Joab makes it, shimmies his way up. And for those of you who have been with me to Israel, we, we look up this, you know, this great cistern that at some points is like 12 feet wide. And so you have to imagine that, that Joab was having to use perhaps a long staff and extending his body to shimmy up inside this long cistern to get into the city of Jerusalem. And then that's how they were able to get into the city of Jerusalem and to take the city. So that won't happen now for hundreds of years later under King David. So presently, the Jebusites occupy Jerusalem. In terms, presently, in terms of the story. Verse 22, and the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, please show us the entrance to the city. We will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. The uh, tribe of Joseph, they take this city of Luz. This guy tells them, here's the entrance, here's how you can get in. They take it, they demolish the city of Luz. They spare this guy. And so the guy says, well, then I'm going to go and I'm going to start another city naming it Luz because this one's demolished now. And of course, everybody who lived there in that city were known as losers. All right. Anyway, uh, yeah, that's not in the Bible. That's just me. All right. Verse 27. However... Manasseh did not drive out. Now look, this, this gets, this, this here is going to give us insight into what went wrong here. Look at this. However, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bechan and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. Remember, the Canaanites were perennial enemies of the Israelites. These are the people that God said, you need to drive them out. I'm giving you this land, but you can't allow them to remain there because the influence is going to destroy you. And here it tells us time and time again, these various tribes would drive out the people to a point. 
but they wouldn't totally drive them out completely. So they're allowed to dwell there. Verse 28, it continues. And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but did not completely drive them out. Let me tell you something. If you're powerful enough to subject them to tribute, which is basically you got to pay us in order to stay here, then you're powerful enough to drive them out. They are negotiating. And this is a picture for us of our own flesh. There are certain things that God will tell us, drive out. But we try to negotiate with our flesh. I'm just going to let this little part stay here because I enjoy this little part. And God's like, drive that out. Yeah, but I enjoy this little part. It's That's going to be the little part that destroys you. This is a picture here of what happens when we don't do due diligence to deal with the stuff that could potentially destroy us. You know how it goes. Like The little things that destroy us, if we don't destroy it first, it'll destroy us. And so this is what is happening here. And the saga continues, verse 29. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them. Nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalol. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Echo, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or Allah, or Agzi, or Helba, or Afik, or Reha. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beit Anath. But they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh and Beit Anath were put under tribute to them. And the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down into the valley. Look how sad is that? It's like the the tribe of Dan, not only did they not drive out the Canaanites, but it says here that the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Perizzites, all these various foreign tribes, these pagan tribes, they forced the children of Dan into the mountains. Said, you stay up there. We're not going to let you come down. And they hold them hostage. This is not how God's people are supposed to live here. But this is what is happening when you don't effectively drive out the enemy that could destroy you. Verse 35, And the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Heres, in Ajalon, and in Shalbim. Yet when the strength of the house of Joseph became greater, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. Isn't that sad? The boundary of the Amorites? We should be talking about the boundary of the children of Israel and the various tribal allotments. Instead, what we have here is the fact that the people of God were not determined to do what God said. They allowed the influence to remain. They allowed the small vestige of these pagan people to remain. And at times, these pagan people were stronger than the Israelites, drove the tribe of Dan up the mountain. And so the people of God were held hostage by, by the very people that they were supposed to destroy. Now they were subjecting them to tribute, okay, but they would come back and back again and again and again until they would successfully drive them out. And this would lead to this cycle. So let me just say, here's the takeaway from chapter 1, because this is all we're going to deal with. The takeaway from chapter 1 is, look, the little things are the things that could end up destroying us. I'm going to share three illustrations to kind of drive this point home. Columbia Space Shuttle. You remember the Columbia Space Shuttle? February the 1st, 2003. 
The space shuttle Columbia disintegrated upon re-entry to Earth from outer space, killing all seven crew members on board. It was later determined that a small piece of foam insulation had broken off during takeoff, resulting in a small six-inch gouge to the underside of Columbia's left wing. Columbia takes off. Debris hits the underside of the wing. Small little six-inch gouge. Upon re-entry to Earth, that small gouge allowed hot atmospheric gases to penetrate and destroy the internal wing structure, and when that happened, everything else disintegrated. A 230,000-pound aircraft, 122 feet long, 56 feet high, with a wingspan of 78 feet, all disintegrated because of a small six-inch tear that compromised the entire thing. We're all familiar with the story of the Titanic, right? An unknown crew member was reported to have said to a passenger, even God himself could not sink the ship. But on its maiden voyage across the Atlantic, it hit an iceberg and sank in two hours and 40 minutes. 1,503 people died. After all the investigations into why the Titanic sank, the final conclusion was not weak steel. That's what they first thought when it impacted the iceberg. It was weak steel. No, it wasn't. It was the little rivets, the metal screws that kept the steel plates together. In an effort to save time, inferior rivets were used, which proved in the end to be the vulnerability of the Titanic. Last illustration, Eastern Airlines, flight number 401. On its way from JFK to Miami International Airport, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 crashed into the Florida Everglades on December the 29th, 1972 at 11.42 p.m. because of pilot error, listen, and a $5 light bulb. On its approach to Miami International Airport, the pilot dropped the landing gear, but a little green light that was supposed to illuminate showing the landing gear was in locked position did not light up. So they weren't sure if the wheels were down. The crash occurred as a result of the entire flight crew becoming preoccupied with the landing gear indicator light and failing to notice that the autopilot had inadvertently been disconnected. As a result, while the flight crew was distracted with the little indicator light and because the flight was at night and the Everglades are dark, no one could visibly notice the gradual drop in altitude and the aircraft crashed, 101 people, including the captain, died. And it was later determined that the landing gear was, in fact, down, just the light bulb was burned out. It is the little things that will destroy us. If God is dealing with you about some little thing in your life that is displeasing to him, deal with it now before it destroys you. It's those little things. You say, well, it's just a little thing. It's no big deal. It's just a little thing. That's the very thing that's going to destroy you. What we see happening in the nation of Israel is symptomatic of what could happen in any of us. Often those little things that will destroy us. When God points those things out to us, don't turn a deaf ear. 
but say, Lord, help me to deal with this. Help me to deal with this. I want to be right with you. I don't want this thing to come back to destroy me. Lord, I want you to destroy it. Help me in Jesus' name. That's the prayer. Our days are sometimes filled with nonstop movement, aren't they? The pastors, staff, and community here at Cornerstone Connection don't want you to miss out on nuggets of wisdom from God's Word. We encourage you to subscribe to our podcast so that you can connect with us from anywhere. Interested in hearing more? Go to cornerstoneconnection.cc, where Pastor Gary Hamrick has more audio messages for you to tune into. Scroll down until you see the space that says Teaching Library. Once there, we've made it as simple as possible to search by topic, speaker, or book. We pray that you'll be uplifted and encouraged in your walk with Jesus. That website again is cornerstoneconnection.cc. If you're in the Leesburg area, we'd love for you to stop by. We have Sunday services at 8.30, 10, and 11.45. Is the middle of your week more free? Come join us on Wednesday evenings then at 7. Were you blessed by what you heard today? Would you consider donating some of your resources? If so, it's pretty simple. You can use our mobile app or click on the Give Now tab found at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Well, that's all the time we have for today, but we look forward to our next time together right here on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know, you're not alone. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. Hope is an open ocean, jump in and you'll find the corner. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.